And the rest of us, we will be continuing in the, the book of John. Now, remember last week, uh, Jesus has just declared himself to be uh, the good shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep. Now, this week, uh, the Jews are coming to Jesus and asking for clarity. They want him to be clear as to whether or not he is the Messiah, the anointed one, the one who is appointed by God to bring about uh, restoration and redemption. And as we think about this question, uh, this is a question that is still very much on our minds today. Who is Jesus, and has Jesus clearly and adequately declared who he is? Now, for some of us, uh, we want that from God, ultimately. We want greater clarity, like, prove that you are real. Do some miracles. Answer my prayer. I want to see you clearly and without the need for, for faith, maybe. There are others who just expect Jesus to come and, and make it very clear to people so that they can make a choice. So they really know what they're getting. They know, you know, yes, he said he is God. He said he's the Messiah. He said he's the only way. And now I can choose. That seems to be what the, the Jews of the day are, are asking for. They want him to, to clearly spell out who he is, that they may judge him accordingly. And Jesus has to navigate these waters carefully because uh, to say these things openly uh, can get him into a lot of hot water. And so Jesus has to uh, wisely and beautifully proclaim himself to be the, the messianic son of God, but do so in a way that protects him and, and convicts those who would doubt his ability to claim those things. So today we're going to be looking at uh, his, his assertion that he is the the Son of God, one with the Father. We're going to see how he defends that from the Scriptures with the ultimate goal that we might see that Jesus declares who he is by his works. His works speak for themselves. And our works speak for themselves as well, such that we would desperately need this kind of Savior, a Son of God, a Messiah, who would lay himself down on our behalf. So with that, let's look at John 10, verses 22 through 42. At that time, the feast of dedication took place at Jerusalem. It was winter, and Jesus was walking in the temple in the colonnade of Solomon. So the Jews gathered around him and said, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Jesus answered them, I told you, and you do not believe. The words that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me, but you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them from my hand. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and the Father are one. The Jews picked up stones again to stone him. 
And Jesus answered them, I have shown you many good works from the Father. For which of them do you still, are you going to stone me? The Jews answered them, It's not for a good work that we're going to stone you, but for blasphemy, because you, being a man, make yourself God. Jesus answered them, Is it not written in your law, I said you are gods? If he called them gods to whom the word of God came, and Scripture cannot be broken, do you say of him whom the Father consecrated and sent into the world, you are blaspheming because I said I am the Son of God? If I'm not doing the works of my Father, then do not believe me. But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, believe the works that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I am in the Father. Again, they sought to arrest him, but he escaped from their hands. And he went away again across the Jordan to the place where John had been baptizing at first, and there he remained. And many came to him, and they said to him, and, uh, and they said, John did no sign, but everything that John said about this man was true, and many believed in him there. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for sending Jesus. We thank you for his works. We thank you for the works that declared him to be the Son of God, and we thank you for the works that he has done to bring about our salvation. Father, we ask that you might give us clarity in our heart, in our spirit, to believe that Jesus Christ really is the Son of God, the Savior of the world, the Lamb of God. And Lord, would we trust him to do the work of perseverance and endurance to bring us into new life, that none of us should perish. Holy Spirit, would you uh, fill us that our hearts may hear and see the goodness of Christ, we pray in his name. Amen. All right, so Jesus starts by declaring himself to be the Messiah and the Son of God. Verse 22. At that time, the feast of dedication took place at Jerusalem. It was winter, and Jesus was walking in the temple in the colonnade of Solomon. All right, now most of you don't know what the feast of dedication is because you know it by another name. This is Hanukkah, all right, winter holiday Hanukkah. So what is this celebrating? Hanukkah is recognizing that in 167, uh, the temple had been overrun and taken over and defiled with idolatry. And so uh, Judas Maccabeus, he rose up in, 16, uh, in 164, sorry, and he started a revolution to take back the temple, and he was successful. And so what did they do? They had to rededicate the temple and cleanse it. They only had a little bit of oil left. That's where the oil story comes from, uh, the lighting of the lamp. Only a tiny bit of oil for one day was, was still good enough and pure enough to burn, but it lasts for eight days, and that's where, where Hanukkah comes from. So what are we talking about? This is the context of celebrating a revolution that brought about political victory for Israel. Right. That is our context. So 24. So the Jews gathered around him and said, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. 
Now, this is kind of a loaded question, especially in the context. Because many people thought that Judas Maccabeus was the, the Christ, the anointed one. He brought about political revolution. What is Jesus going to do? Who does he claim to be? And we can see right off, this is a pretty dangerous question. Because to claim to be the Christ, and if that's really what this is about, then his enemies could then go to the Roman rule and say, this guy is claiming to be king. He's trying to overthrow the Roman rule. Kill him. Now, that's, that's one problem, but the, the bigger problem is Jesus has to clarify who the Christ is and what he's actually coming to do. And if he throws around these titles, they are so loaded and politicized that to claim to be the Christ would actually confuse the people. He's trying to like bring about spiritual revolution and redemption out of sin. And so to claim to be the Christ would be confusing. All right, there are terms like right now that are kind of like that, like the, the term evangelical can sometimes get kind of bogged down with political muck that it wasn't supposed to, but it, there's why many Christians are abandoning that title because it, it says too much. So Jesus has to navigate the fact that he is the Christ, but how does he do it such that he protects both his mission and his person? And so what does he say? He says, I told you, and you do not believe. Now, how does he told them? They just said that he didn't give clarity. Why, why does he think he told them? Because the works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me. That the works that he has done has been all too clear. If they've looked at the works, they should know that, yes, of course, he, he is the Christ, he is the Messiah, and he's claiming to be by those works. Now, we already saw that he uh, healed a paralyzed man who'd been paralyzed for 38 years. He has healed a man who was born blind, both of which fulfill mass messianic prophecies of Isaiah 35. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, and the ears of the deaf, unstop, uh, the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. Elsewhere we see him, he's, he's fed the 5,000. The prophet that is greater than Moses, who can feed his people with true spiritual bread. He's called out sin and hypocrisy. He's clarified the realities of Scripture and the law. And he will do even greater works. He will resurrect people from the dead. He himself will resurrect himself from the dead. The works of Jesus have declared that he is the Messiah. And if they do not see that and cannot see them, what is wrong? Verse 26. But you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. Now last week we saw what is true of the sheep. That the sheep hear his voice, they follow him. And here we have kind of the the other side of that statement. If you do not hear 
and you cannot see, if, if Jesus has not been clear enough, then you are not his sheep. It is not a problem with Jesus' clarity. It's a problem with a sheep who are blind and cannot see, who are deaf and will not hear, who are faithless and will not believe. The works are enough if they want to believe. And Jesus now is going to talk about then one, one final work. Verse 28. I will give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them from my hand. Think of the reality of what this, this man is claiming to give eternal life such that those who come to him will never perish and no one will snatch them from his hand. But they will, will not be judged. They will not be destroyed. No thief can come steal them. No one can trick them out of salvation. No one can rob them of the eternal life that he has secured and is going to give to his sheep. Now we ask, okay, how does he make that claim? How does he make this huge claim that no matter what, those whom he has chosen cannot and will not perish and cannot fall away? Verse 29, my father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of my father's hand. No, this is the... The doctrine of assurance of salvation and perseverance of the saints. And what does it stand on? It doesn't stand on our works. It doesn't stand on our ability. What does it stand on? It stands on the power of the Father who is greater than all. If he wills for something to be, it happens. No one is going to overpower him. No one is going to outwit him. No one is going to thwart the things that he has determined. And therefore, if he has given them and chosen them, and if he is holding on to a person, they will never be snatched from his hand. Now, we have two lines. I thought, okay, so here's Jesus, the one who who will not let anyone go, based upon the power of the Father. But how do those two things come together with this last statement in verse 30? I and the Father are one. I and the Father are one. Now that is a huge, profound statement. This isn't the only time. Jesus said just a few weeks ago, before Abraham was, I am once again claiming to be divine. Okay, so let's flesh out. What does this mean? I and the Father are one. First, what it doesn't mean. This is not saying this, this is just two names for the same person. No, that's heresy. It's not that there is one being and he can put on different hats or different modes and kind of look different. No. No, it's a, it's a 
It's a mind-boggling distinction here. The same distinction that comes from John 1 where he says, in the beginning, the Word was with God and was God. Distinct and yet the same. Separated and united. Jesus is one with the Father, but is not the Father. He is the Son. And so what are we saying when we say they are one? I think in the very least we are saying that their, their wills are the same, their purposes are the same, that the things that they determine to do, they together do as one, and therefore, if the Son and the Father are united on a purpose, it is, it is singular, and it will be done. But this, this will is so perfectly conjoined that we see behind it even more amazing things that they are two persons of one divine essence. That the Father and the Son are fully God. They are two persons. And okay, that's, that's really hard to grasp. There is one God, three persons. This God is personal. These three are personal. These three are all God, but they are not the same. There is one God and three persons, and we hold those together, and our minds explode, <laughs> and that's okay. All right, one time someone, sometimes someone called me up uh, from the church and was really distressed, and they're like, I think I don't understand the Trinity. <laughs> How are they three and one? I must be missing something. I'm like, no, you got it right. <laughs> if you said you understand it, then, you're, then you'd be uh, in, a, in a bad spot. But because you don't get it fully, that means you understood. All right. Now, Jesus is laying out all of that, and you think like, okay, it has weird theology, mystery, things I can't understand. But why does he say it? He says it so that you might understand this very beautiful and practical reality that if the Father wants you and the Son wants you, it is more than guaranteed. That whatever the, the Father wills, the Son accomplishes perfectly because they are one. The Son will never fail to do what the Father determines. The Father will never supersede the Son and leave Him out such that He calls someone He wasn't supposed to or acts as shepherd to someone who is not supposed to be a sheep. No, this, this unity of purpose means those who are His sheep can never be pulled away. And that's both from outside Satan cannot get them. The world cannot have them. The wolves will not devour them. The thieves will not steal them. And that's true from the inside, too. No amount of sin will disqualify them. No doubts will overcome their faith. No temptations will draw them away. 
even, even the sheep themselves, kicking and biting and bleeding, they cannot get out of his hand. Will you receive these words? Do you hear them? Do you love them and enjoy them and delight in them? This is the good shepherd. This is the good shepherd who, who calls his sheep and holds on to them. What a beautiful and amazing work. Work that he alone could do because he is someone who is utterly unique, one with the Father. Now, sadly, how did the Jews react to this? Verse 31, the Jews picked up stones again to stone him. They were once again going to try to kill him without reason, without justice, and Jesus defends himself, and he asks them, I have shown you many good works from the Father. For which of them are you going to stone me? You're going to stone me because I said that I'd bring about your eternal salvation and offer it freely and such that it would never be taken away from you? That's really the, the work that you hate? No, that's where, okay. Is Jesus dumb and he doesn't understand what, why they're trying to stone him? No. <laughs> All right, he knows why they want to stone him. But what is he he's trying to, to take them off of? These crazy words that he just said, which even now we think is, is crazy and hard to understand and hard to believe. And he's saying, stop looking at the, the words. The words aren't the important part. Look at the works. If I'm a man, then yes, that was a crazy thing to say, and you should stone me. But my works speak otherwise. My works don't say I'm just a man. The miracles that I'm doing, they don't say that I'm just a man. The fulfillment of Scripture doesn't say I'm just a man. And it's completely unreasonable that your response to these works should be to stone me. Now the Jews answered him, it's not for good work that, you're doing, that we are going to stone you, but for blasphemy, because you being a man, make yourself God. Right. So they correctly heard him. This is clear to them. It might not sound as clear to us, but when Jesus says this, he is claiming to be God. Now, Jesus starts to defend himself in what initially looks like the worst argument ever. All right, I, I, when I first read this, I was like, he could have done better than that. This is not that compelling. I'm not convinced. And then I read more and like, okay, he's Jesus and he, he knows what he's doing. So, uh, so let's take it first, uh, at face value first. Verse uh, 34. Jesus answered them, Is it not written in your law, I said you are God's? If he called them gods to whom the word of God came, and Scripture cannot be broken, do you say of him whom the Father consecrated and sent into the world, you are blaspheming because I said I am the Son of God? Got that? All right. Yeah, yeah, clear as mud. Good. All right, so initially, what does this sound like? He picked out a verse in all of the Bible where, a, where some people happen to be called gods. And he's saying, oh, well, there's a place in Scripture where other people, where people are called gods, so 
Surely I can call myself the Son of God, one with the Father. What's wrong with that? All right. If that's all Jesus is saying, that would be fine. It would be kind of ticky-tacky and proof-texty and semantic, but like, okay. It's not a very good argument, though. Like, okay, maybe someone said, like, there's one weird little passage that says this. It's fine, but this is not Jesus. Jesus is not the, the semantics, the, well, I can, I can find a way out using one verse of Scripture so I can do whatever I want. That's not Jesus. And so I'm going to try harder to understand what he's trying to say here. And actually, he's doing, he's doing way more than that. So Jesus picked this verse, not so much for this verse, but for the whole passage. And that's where if you started to read your Bible and you think about the, like, the ways he, they quote Scripture, sometimes it sounds kind of stupid, like, what, that's the verse they picked? And like, uh, I don't see how it fits. Now, that's because that's not how they're using Scripture. Usually, when they mention one verse, they want you to go back to that and like, think of the whole context and the whole passage. The whole thing relates. All right, what's it, what's it similar to? All right, let's say we're having a discussion about race and racial reconciliation, and I said, I have a dream. All right, am I talking about the dream I had last night? No, everyone knows that. And they would probably, when they, you hear, I have a dream, it imports all of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr.'s, like, all of his, all of that speech, at least, but, like, all of his work, his person, his character, like, it's, it's calling all of this and, and pouring it all that meaning together. And that's often how Scripture uses verses, and I think that's how Jesus is using it here. And so he's using one little verse from Psalm 82. And he's using it to put the whole of Psalm 82 as a mirror up to these leaders and asking them to look at it. So let's, let's look at Psalm 82. God has taken his place in the divine council. In the midst of the gods, he holds judgment. How long will you judge unjustly and show partiality to the wicked? Give justice to the weak and the fatherless. Maintain the right of the afflicted and the destitute. Rescue the weak and the needy. Deliver them from the hand of the wicked. They have neither knowledge nor understanding. They walk in darkness. All the foundations of the earth are shaken. I said, you are gods, sons of the Most High, all of you. Nevertheless, like men you shall die and fall like any prince. Arise, O God, judge the earth, for you shall inherit all the nations. What is this about? First off, who are these gods? These gods are, are rulers. Rulers of nations, particularly the, those called by God, those who have the law, the rulers of Israel. 
And what is this message saying to those gods? Is they have failed. That they were supposed to look like God as they ruled. And as they ruled, they're supposed to rule in a godly way that reflects his, his priorities. And that fights for things like justice and mercy and goodness. That destroys wickedness and upholds good. And even more than just like looking like God, what are they supposed to be? They are supposed to be sons of God. Verse 6. I said, you are God's sons of the Most High, all of you. Nevertheless, like men you shall die and fall like any prince. These leaders are supposed to look like God their father, such that they would be sons of God. But what have they done? They have utterly failed to do that. In their wickedness and in their bias and in the darkness of their understanding, they have not followed their father. And they have done injustice and evil. Now, why does Jesus bring up that passage? He brings up that passage because the problem is not the language of calling themselves gods. His problem is not that he said, oh, it's, it's, I, I make myself one with God. No, everyone is a god. Everyone is supposed to be a son of the Father, especially the Jewish leaders who he's talking to. The problem is not with the title. The problem is with the works. Their works prove that they are not sons of God. They are actually fathers. They are sons of, of Satan. They are sons of darkness, sons of wickedness, based upon the works that they do. They should be less concerned about everyone's titles. They should be more concerned about their works and Jesus's. And so Jesus, once again, he, he takes us back and, and says, consider the works. Consider the works that I do. Rescue the weak and the needy. Deliver them from the hand of the wicked. Give justice to the weak and the fatherless. Maintain the right of the afflicted and the destitute. He's saying, actually, by my works, I am a son of God. I'm actually so perfectly doing these works that I show myself not to just be a son of God, to be the son of God the fully divine Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, one Lord Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, eternally begotten of the Father, God from God, light of lights, true God of true God, begotten not made, of one being with the Father. That's the kind of sonship that Jesus is proving himself to be by his works. And the question is, for the Jewish leaders, who do you prove to be by your works? And we are caught in that crossfire as well. Who do we prove to be by our works? 
We are called to be sons of God, to reflect our Father who created us. We are called to be image bearers, reflecting His nature, loving and giving grace and mercy, giving life. And we have to ask ourselves, what do we look like? Do we look like the sons of God we are called to be? And he asks that to, to draw us to repentance because the answer is no. We do not look like the sons of God we are called to be. We have not done the works that we are called to do. We have shown ourselves, in and of ourselves, to be sons of darkness. Now that, that isn't to bring us to despair. That is to bring us to the works of Jesus and to abandon our works and receive his. Verse 37. If I'm not doing the works of my Father, then what? Then do not believe me. But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, believe the works that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I am in the Father. Notice, he's not saying you need to work harder or start doing the works you're called to do. No, he says, you believe me. That's the core of the Christian life is that for, for, for Jesus, it's very works-based because he did all the works perfectly on our behalf to, to prove his, his sonship so that we might not work, but so we might believe. We might believe in Jesus and trust him to, to give us all of those good works, to give us his sonship, to adopt us into the family, that we might receive the divine son and become adopted human by faith, sons, with good works that are Jesus's and given to us. And works that continue to change us and sanctify us, works that hold us until that final day unto eternal life. That is Jesus's point here. And that those works would, those vicarious works would then start to spill out into our lives. We'd start to reflect him. Not because we are alone trying to do our works. Because now we are one with Jesus, who is one with the Father, and who is working in us to give us new life, to transform us from the inside out. All right, I ask you some questions now. Are you actually dealing with the works of Jesus? There are too many people who, who, are, 
who don't care about the works that Jesus did, and they only care about what, what, what are you going to do now, Jesus? Prove yourself to me as I sit in my bedroom and wait for you instead of dealing with the fact that what about all of the works he's already done? What do you do with them? What do you say to them? Do you believe in them? Have you asked yourself, what if all of these people are seeing the miracles of Jesus and shocked by them and hate him and are, I cannot get rid of him because the works speak for themselves, what do you do with a Savior, who, with a person who does such works and claims to be God? Stop looking for your own works. Look at the works he's done. Let them open your eyes. Trace them back to who he must be. Second, are you looking at your works and have you found them wanting? Have you seen the the darkness of your works? What the works say about you if you are left to yourself, if you're trying to save yourself? You do not want to go to heaven with only your works in your back pocket. They will only condemn you. We trust in Jesus to give us his perfection, his works, his righteousness, his goodness, only by faith. That is your only ticket. If he's washed away our sins and placed on us his good works. Now the passage ends kind of strangely. Verse 39, again they sought to arrest him, but he escaped from their hands. He went again from the Jordan to the place where John had been baptizing at first, and there he remained. And many came to him, and they said, John did no sign, but everything that John said about this man was true. And many believed in him there. This is kind of funny ending. Jesus has to flee because his time has not yet come. He's not fulfilled all righteousness. He's not done all the works that he needs to do, namely death and resurrection. But he goes to the place of John the Baptist out in the Jordan, and people realize John didn't do any of this stuff. John didn't do miracles like this. John didn't do a single sign. But he did proclaim the Christ. He proclaimed who Jesus was, and now Jesus has proved it. And that's where there are, there are two classes of people. Those who will see all of the signs and not believe. And those who are willing to see And all of the works confirm the things that everyone has been saying already, that Jesus really is the Savior, and they believe. They believe unto eternal salvation. They believe unto that state of in the Father's, in the shepherd's hand, never to be snatched away. And they believe in that unto salvation. Let us be those second people. 
Let us trust in our Savior. Let us look to him. Let us have him wash away our sins as the good shepherd who lays his life down for sheep. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you sent your son Jesus to die for our sins and to give us eternal life. We thank you that you, with one purpose, called for us to be saved, sent Jesus to do it. And though we didn't talk about it today, you gave us the Holy Spirit to to seal and guarantee that all of that has taken place. Father, if if we have believed in Christ, we ask that you would give us great assurance, both that his works confirm who he is, that we have not merely trusted in blind faith, but we have trusted in a Savior who proved himself. And Father, would you give us the confidence that Jesus speaks about, that we would trust that we will not be snatched away that our life is hidden with Christ on high, that the things that you have purposed will come to pass. And Father, for those who have not trusted in Christ, I ask that you would call, that you'd open eyes and unstop ears, that the works of Jesus would speak And that, Jesus, you would do the work that is even now required to soften hearts and open eyes and, and bring life to those who are dead. Father, would you get all the glory for all the work that you've done. We thank you that you have called us to be your sheep and given us our Savior. In his name we pray.